Welcome back to a new episode of That's So Second Millennium, the podcast where we're exploring the boundaries between faith and science. I'm very happy to be here with Craig Lent at the University of Notre Dame and uh, uh, looking forward to talking to him. He was one of the speakers at last year's uh, Society of Catholic Scientists conference on the subject of the human mind and physicalism. He is actually a professor in uh, electrical engineering here at uh, the University of Notre Dame in my old stomping grounds here in Cushing Hall. My my old lab was in Fitzpatrick because I was uh, in the civil engineering and geological sciences department. So uh, very, very uh, comfortable uh, locality here to do a little uh, recording and to, uh, to have a discussion about the uh, those issues of, you know, whether it makes sense, whether we can logically, consistently um, believe in, you know, you know, what what things what what has happened since the 1890s in terms of the physics of whether it makes any sense to believe that we have a soul that can affect our physical body and you know issues in that cluster of issues. So where'd you like to start? Well, I think uh, uh, the physicalism. Uh, I think one has to appreciate just how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. The the uh, often called reductionist. That that's work from Newton on yeah. has just been remarkably successful. Yeah. And it you know, layer upon layer and refinement on refinement. And what we really do think of ourselves as having learned just a whole lot about how the physical world works. And the mathematical nature of that description, mm-hmm. um, the way chemistry becomes physics the ways so much biology becomes mm-hmm. chemistry, etc. Geology for the same, yeah. same way, yeah. So th- that, uh, uh, I don't think one can deny just how remarkably successful that is. Yeah. In the, the course I'm teaching for the first time on physicalism and Catholicism, mm-hmm. we're reading a book by Sean Carroll, The, the Big Picture, his, mm-hmm. his take on reality, which is what he calls poetic naturalism, but it's yeah. a species of yeah. physicalism. That was your talk, wasn't it? They mentioned his, or, or did he, someone else at the conference also mention his work? I think somebody else mentioned his work. Yeah, yeah. he comes up on because yeah. I think he's the he's the least hysterical of that group, <laughs> and yeah. is, is uh, pretty calm and careful, and he's he's trying to put things together. So I think that's uh, there's there's just a lot there, and it really does work at lots of levels. Mm-hmm. So I think the the ideas of emergence mm-hmm. or downward causation um, those those come in for a pretty that's a pretty sharp criticism that we haven't seen anything like that. You know, we have that. Uh, the reduction of one. downward. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Well, I, I think this, um, there's kind of two kinds of emergence that people talk about. The, uh, hard emergence and a soft emergence or a weak emergence. So weak emergence would be just there's complicated stuff at the micro level. Mm-hmm. And then at a higher level of description, you see surprising things mm-hmm. like superconductivity. Right. Who would have thought that would emerge? From electrons kind of banging around in a crystal, you know, right. that, that, that would happen. Uh, it, it wouldn't be, it, it's, it's very surprising. So you have collective kind of effects, you have subtle effects that happen 
on the on this when you have many many mm-hmm. bodies involved, lots of different length scales, mm-hmm. different things happening. Um, what uh, what a hard emergence would mean is you can that something like that happens. There's a description at the higher level that can't, in principle, be reduced to the lower level. Mm-hmm. So superconductivity isn't like that. Right. We thought we had, when we thought we had a real handle on that is precisely because there's a microscopic theory that shows how yeah. the interactions between electrons and phonons work out this way. So um, the word emergence mm-hmm. came up a lot actually in the seventies. I think it, I think it was the late seventies, and it was a um, among scientists, mm-hmm. and there was a famous paper. Uh, called More is Different by Anderson, by P.W. Anderson. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, where he's making this case that, you know, it's not that particle physics, there's particle physics, fundamental particle physics, and everything else is kind of homework problems. That right. Just working out <laughs> the, the details. And if you assemble a system this big, then, yeah. you know, this happens. And it's, it's interesting that the context for that argument, um, I mean, he he was a complete reductionist. He would mm-hmm. say, absolutely, the laws of the basic laws of physics are there. He he, mm-hmm. he actually took some pains, even in that article, to make sure it was clear he was not doubting the reductionist paradigm. Right. So I think, that, um, but he used emergence, mm-hmm. and it got a lot of uh, play after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really about respect. It was really an argument between condensed matter physics. Mm-hmm. Physicists and uh, particle physicists, and the subject was respect. Yeah, <laughs> and the subject was funding. Yeah. yeah, he testified before Congress about mm-hmm. the superconducting super collider. Yeah, and the argument was why put all the research money for the, the federal government? Yeah. Well, it's an exaggeration, of course. Yeah. Behind that, when yeah. there's plenty of you know, quote, fundamental physics yeah. in uh, condensed matter physics. So the, oh. the the debate, as often happens, was intense because it was practical. And yes. It was about because funding. dollars were involved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, it, yeah. uh, but that observation that there are really surprising things that happen at a higher scale, and it's very frequently useful to have a higher length scale description mm-hmm. of it, even yeah. Ohm's Law. It's yeah. not a microscopic oh yeah. theory. It's a, it's a, it's an approximation that works well yeah. in a it's particular almost regime. like we define resistance as being this in some sense. Yeah. But you can, you can make a more microscopic model, include scattering in a crystal yeah. lattice and show. Ohm's you know, law emerges. emerges. That. Yeah. So that's the, that's the kind of sense of emergent mm-hmm. that I think 99% of science is, you know, quite comfortable with. Okay. We have to have larger levels of description. So yeah. all of chemistry, certainly all of biology, geology, all the, yeah. all that. Yeah. So the, the, um, argument, but that word gets taken more seriously by philosophers, I think, mm-hmm. who are, uh, in my experience, lots of them are quite impressed that things happen at a higher level mm-hmm. that can't be reduced to the lower level. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, my own view is to date, you'd say, well, that, that might happen, but uh, we, 
we we don't have any evidence for that, any scientific evidence. Yeah. Um, as things stand, I can, I can imagine making a case, but um, it would be a big deal. And in fact, you know, as, as you know, there's not even any multi-body terms. I mean, the fundamental interactions are all two particles. It's all corners and mm. Feynman diagrams. So yeah, you, the and it's pretty dad blame simplistic. Yeah. Uh, a, a priori, there might have been yeah. things that ha- only happen with when three particles come together, or you know, more, yeah. co- more complicated things. Yeah. But um, the, phys- the physical world just start- turns out to have simpler laws than that. Mm-hmm. So it does seem to me that that's that's an extraordinarily successful paradigm of building from lower levels up, or seeing regularities at the higher levels. And, you know, you build a, a theory um, mm-hmm. uh, at the higher level, and that can be entirely helpful. Um, but you you either can connect it directly to a microscopic, more microscopic mm-hmm. theory, or you think that or you, expect you could. To be yeah, one, yeah. You expect that. that the mere fact there. that I haven't succeeded doesn't mean that no one else will. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, gives us more of an idea is this, you know, sense of emergence. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult <laughs> thinking in my own discipline, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to know the laws of quantum physics, but we're, we're very, very far from the point where we can sort of, you know, cook up a whole planet in our, or even a whole asteroid in our uh, modeling and yeah. say, okay, yeah, we only have, uh, I wouldn't be able to do a, a, a reasonable number, but you know, what's the earth? 6.6 sextillion tons. I think that's a, um, give or take. And then an asteroid could be, you know, a millionth of that and still be a pretty big asteroid. Yeah, I mean, that would still be however many atoms that we could not possibly, sure. <laughs> let alone if we tried to start modeling the quarks inside the nuclei. I mean, you know, right. And no reason to, you've got yeah. good, good models that work at the appropriate length scales. Yeah. Yeah, for differentiation and, and, you know, core formation or, you know, magnetic fields and all those sort of things, whether, when and whether they will have them. Um, so to bring it back to, and of course we've been, well, we have in fact avoided the word materialism up until now. So using the words physicalism or reductionism instead and different words tend to have different meanings. So what are, what, what's the precise meaning with which you're using using the two terms and not using the other one. Right. I guess there are a number of terms in play. Um, materialism, there's philosophical materialism that there's just matter in fields, basically. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much, um, I, I think, what one means by physicalism. Mm-hmm. There's that uh, reality is exhausted by that descriptions, particles mm-hmm. and fields. Um, so, including the relativistic fields of you know, space, time, and whatnot, whatever right. whatever that turns out to be. But. Yeah, that's right. And you can you don't know everything in that theory, but you kind of know the shape of that theory. Mm-hmm. And the point Sean Carroll makes is we have an extraordinarily good handle on the the version of that theory that works on our kind of length scales, like locally in the solar system mm-hmm. on, on the scale that we interact with, the, the, we're unlikely to find a whole new 
physical laws that matter at this kind of energy scale, length scale. Mm-hmm. There could be new particles, but there's a reason why we haven't seen them. They right. either exist so uh, sort of such fleeting moments yeah. that you know we don't see them; they don't matter, or they're so weakly coupled to mm-hmm. the rest of matter that we don't see them interacting. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, dark matter might be like that, but so it doesn't, it doesn't affect mm-hmm. our, our normal experience of reality. But, f- uh, physicalism, I think, is a helpful term just to, to grab that concept. Materialism has this alternative, uh, you know, so a meaning in kind of psychological, sociological, what people value. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And scientism, um, is is a not um, scientism seems like it's an approach that privileges it's an epistemological question only only information gathered through the scientific method is seen as valid so they I think there are slightly discernible differences so mm-hmm. the the um, the thing I I tend to think has a a nice handle because it's the way students in the sciences and engineering come to view the world as physicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, this, that, and I'm talking, I'm deliberately talking about reality and then talking about particles and fields, you mm-hmm. know, a, th- a theory. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that leads us back to that question of, you know, what are human beings if we are, are we or are we not simply, you know, a collection of matter and fields arranged into these particular patterns we call neurons and muscle cells and blood cells and blood and plasma and um, bile and, and whatnot. And, uh, and those particles obeying the physical law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, there, I, I think there is a physical law and we've mm-hmm. studied it quite a bit and know you know, there are these forces, there are these yeah. fields and quanta. Uh, there's things that we don't know. But the, um, so for me, you asked the question about what's, what's new in that, uh, toward the end of the second millennium there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a, I think we still underappreciate, um, the break with the mechanical universe that quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Enabled. So the classical worldview, which includes special and general relativity, yeah. had what was a mechanical world. And if we were having yeah. this conversation in, uh, in 1890, I think it would be a harder conversation. Right? Yeah. It was, it's, uh, it really did seem like we were able to master an awful lot of the physical world by a description in which the uh, you know the future was contained in the present. The famous mm-hmm. example yeah. being Laplace's demon, yeah. um, and he's writing in 1820. So he doesn't. I think it's about, it's about 1820. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't yet know about Maxwell's equations. He doesn't know mm-hmm. about electromagnetism. Right. But what he says still can just true. comprehend all of that. That yeah. you have equations of motion. And the characteristic of them is they only require knowing the state of the universe at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, they don't need history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really interesting. It might have been different. You know, yeah. you could easily imagine right? we, we're, in our ordinary life, explanations of things at a kind mm-hmm. of folk level 
often require a knowledge of the history and how did this come to be here? How, yeah. What do we mean when we wrote this? And so, but for the physical world, a snapshot in time, mm-hmm. uh, and in Laplace's demon case, case, it was all the particles and all, so yeah. all their positions and momenta, yeah. then the information is there. And if you had a powerful computer, which he didn't even know what a computer was, right. but a powerful intellect, he said, could calculate forward in time and know yeah. the entire future or yeah. go backwards. And, and, and know because all those laws were time symmetric. Yeah. Yeah. So the especially law- in 1820 before thermodynamics, I mean, you know, and even then thermodynamics is it's, thermodynamics is a weird side of that debate. So thermodynamics, I mean, my, I would say thermodynamics turns out not to be, uh, right, the, the fundamental objects of thermodynamics turn out not to be fundamental. The, there right. really isn't something called heat. Yeah. There's just kinetic energy well, and particles. in particular, what, what is entropy but um, sort of pattern or lack of pattern? And- yeah, I, I, right, I have a whole... I have a whole view on entropy, but I'm, okay. it's not getting to entropy. But, but yeah. in any case, that, um, well, we get into it later, but yeah. that whole picture, uh, is really quite compelling. And you can, you yeah. know, you can go, you can pretty much go to the moon with that, you know? You, you can. can. Yeah. Uh, so there's, um, the, uh, the only footnote on going to the moon with that is go- actually going to the moon required transistors. And yeah. Transistors are need a certain quantum mechanical. Quantum mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine it, going to the moon with uh, vacuum tubes. <laughs> yeah, I guess you. In theory, I guess you <laughs> could go to the Made it harder, but not still not impossible. Yeah, fair enough. So I think the 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 most interesting fact about quantum mechanics is that the future is not contained in the present. Mm-hmm. So you can have something in a superposition state um, of two choices, and then you make a measurement. We don't know exactly what it takes to make a measurement, but it does happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the physical law allows more than one thing to happen. Mm-hmm. But then one of those things does happen. Mm-hmm. So... That, that, that's, uh, that's just fundamentally different that there are, that character, we learned something about the character of the physical law, that it wasn't deterministic, yeah. that it did not completely constrain what happened next. Yeah. And, um, that was, however, controversial. Oh, yeah. So, um, highly, highly resisted Einstein among other people. Highly resisted by Einstein and, and held held at a little length, and to, in my mind, the the uh, recent Bell tests were mm-hmm. just incredibly important. They yeah. they put a, an end to that discussion. They're often described differently than that, but mm-hmm. I think that uh, the whole question of so if I if I can do my version of that. We knew there there are superposition states, so you can have a particle that's in a combination of plus and minus. Mm-hmm. But but the, the question was always haunted one. Well, is that really a question of your ignorance, or is mm-hmm. you don't exactly know what it is, yeah. or you know really if you if you look under the hood, mm-hmm. it's in one or the other. Maybe it's switching back and forth between them very quickly. Yeah. 
and so lots of physicists. There's some real matter of fact underneath there. Yeah. And that is, is the, that is the fascinating thing about the Bell inequality is that you can actually say there would be a difference. There would be even a difference. Even if you merely could know and though we practically it's even though the hood is bolted down and, and as a practical matter, you actually can't look under there. There's nevertheless a matter of a fact under there that your Laplace's demon could see. And couldn't know the result. So there isn't a result. So Bell's genius was to separate the two. Mm-hmm. So have not one particle in a superposition state, but have two, two. that are in a, in a superposition state together. And then if you let, if you separate them, you could make measurements on them separately. Yeah. And looking at the statistics of those measurements, you could see a difference with whether or not there was actually a superposition where the, the, mm-hmm. there wasn't a fact of the matter before the measurement or a hidden variable where there is a fact of the matter. You might not know it and you might not be able to know it, mm-hmm. but the physical world knows it. So when you do those measurements, you find no, there isn't a fact of the matter before mm-hmm. you make the measurement. Yeah, okay. and, the, and the recent ones were, you know, the most impressive because there was always a question of, is there some hidden physics that connects the, 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 their de- particular detectors and particular orientations? Mm-hmm. How do you know there's not something that puts these things in cahoots? There's some kind of hidden conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And they used, you know, lots of different schemes. They had, they had random number generators. They had quantum random number generators to, to yeah. a- adjust the settings. Yeah. Uh, so they were not correlated. But then you'd say, well, what, what about those generators? Maybe they were uh, secretly interacting, s- interacting with each other. <laughs> yeah. so, Speaking of demons. So, yeah. So, and then, uh, they, tr- you know, one of the, one of the ways they tried to randomize that was with, um, they used, what they called cultural random numbers, mm-hmm. which is they took uh, a set of sitcoms and movies from the 70s. Mm-hmm. They took their digital representation, mm-hmm. ones and zeros, and they they ored them with the digits of pi, and they used different, uh, for the middle of the episodes, different mm-hmm. episodes, different movies, and they had one for one detector and one set the other, so that if <laughs> if there was a conspiracy, yeah. it would have had to involve these sitcoms from the seventies. Right, right. But the the most impressive, which was just completed this summer, was mm-hmm. when they used light from quasars, an opposite okay. size of the galaxy of the universe. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> opposite size of the universe. And they're using the light from the quasars uh-huh. to, tr- to set the settings. So yeah. that the cons- if there was a conspiracy, it would have to have been going back 8 billion Some variability years. in the quasar light. But, yeah. 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 The little, uh, whether the next photon was blue or red, the next photon uh-huh. comes in as blue or red. Yeah. you Ro- yeah. rotates these little polarization yeah. detectors. So that's I, right. Like I, your, like your foghorn leghorn versus, you know, your foghorn leghorn and your uh, Yosemite Sam are being deemed in from a quasar, you know, a gazillion billion. Yeah. And uh, two separate away. ones. So in opposite directions. And so, of course, in, implicitly that many billion years ago. Exactly. So, <laughs> so if you push the conspiracy theory back that far, I'd say sensibly, you'd say, no, this is, this is the case that, yeah. That, uh, there isn't a fact of the matter in these particles, in that case, these photons, mm-hmm. before they're measured. 
the, mm-hmm. so the, the, uh, the result is that it's a proof that the world, the physical world, isn't deterministic. The physical law just doesn't have that character. The presentations of that are often made in terms of spooky action at a distance. Mm-hmm. And I think that just confuses the matter. The, oh, the, yeah, the whole entanglement issue. Yeah. yeah. Entanglement is just superposition. And mm-hmm. you, you would be, what would have been shocking if it's, superposition somehow broke when you just separated things. You'd say, well, why would that be? Right. So uh, all the electrons and all your but, atoms yeah, I mean, are entangled. The, the spooky thing would be if you could somehow separate them and then do something to this one and something happened over to the other particle, which as I understand is not actually what happens, but people well, will make that mistake, but it can't, it, it's, you can't use it to signal you know, right. one to the other. But it is the point that they're in a joint superposition state. So you're mm-hmm. measuring one thing, yeah. which is now an extended object. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing you're measuring, you know, does not have the information about the result mm-hmm. in it. And then it does mm-hmm. when you make the measurement. So I, I think that uh, that's the most important result in a hundred years that mm-hmm. That in physics, that no, the we it's an experimentally verified fact that the future of the physical world, one moment from now, isn't contained in the present, and that so the physical law actually has lots of different possibilities, Mm -hmm. and the physical world somehow realizes one of those. Yeah. So something happens. Yeah. Uh, detectors flash. You see certain things happen, yeah. not other things happen. Yeah. So the um, so I think that that's just a totally key piece of information. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's a fact about the physical law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so does it, what are the consequences? Well, if photons and the basic material of the world electrons, particles, the physical law have multiple possibilities, then it's not surprising that your first order experience of yourself is, well, you you experience yourself at least as physical Mm. and as having choices. As uh, You you might have reasons for your choices, but you think you make make decisions. Yeah. So I don't have to know how a brain works, which is fortunate because I don't know how the brain works. Um, you've done more reading on brains. I know this, but I don't, I don't know how the brain works, but I, I know how the physical law works and the yeah. physical law, particularly in complex systems has just innumerable possibilities. Yeah. So when you open it up to even systems that have, you know, uh, a few hundred degrees of freedom, and you solve the Schrodinger equation, uh, what inevitably happens is the, the, the wave function spreads out. Mm-hmm. The probability densities spread out. Mm-hmm. So more and more things become possible. Um, <laughs> yes. Right? So it's without violating physical law. So if you measure, you'll find it one way or another. Yeah. But the possibilities multiply enormously. <clears throat> which I think that's that's the uh, on my account that's what entropy is about. Okay. Okay. So uh, I think the root of the second law is in that. But in any case, the the primary point is 
the physical world as a matter of experimental fact mm -hmm. is not this big machine. Mm -hmm. So if the physical world isn't a big machine, it's not surprising to find out that you're not just a moist machine. Right. Right. But there's, and then of course, you know, the, the point that, you know, I have experience of consciousness and I have never, I mean, I've, I've never from a, you know, a materialist neuroscience like Steven Pinker or someone like that. I, I have yet to read anything that's anything more than sort of a simple, you know, a fairly transparent, you know, t taking a few shuffling steps and turning around and uh, just basically asserting there is no issue to explain for consciousness that, you know, as, as opposed to giving, I mean, if someone wanted to give me a completely physicalist account of what consciousness is, you know, I want to hear what they have to say, but I haven't, I haven't actually heard an attempt at saying that just, it's really kind of just the assertion that, I mean, and, and implicitly the assertion that physicalism has worked so well since the 17th century, we should just keep riding that train and assume that it, we're somehow going to explain everything that way. It seems like there's increasing realization that there is just a gap there mm -hmm. that um, it's a different kind of thing. And that uh, I think in the last 25 years, it's become acceptable, at least for philosophers um, and philosophers of science to ask about consciousness to say, well, that's, that seems to be a physical, a feature of reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, that there's, you know, there's something, um, Nagel's paper about what is it like to be a bat? You know, that there's, there's something there that, that's, mm. uh, the subjective part of, uh, our experience. And we, I think, reasonably infer that other people are, are having some kind of experience and other animals have some kind of experience of consciousness. They could all be. Yeah, uh, yeah, zombies. They could be, and, and that's kind of the point. Is uh, you can imagine all the machinery working, yeah. and all the neurons firing, and there there being nobody home right. in the sense of a subjective experience of being that person or that animal. Mm. So uh, it does seem like there's a there's an explanatory gap there that you couldn't you couldn't cross by you could explain every everything that uh, happens in a neuron and all your neurons and mm -hmm. still not explain that. Right. Yeah. Cause you could, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, certainly on an external level, we can, we can fool people. We can, you know, of course we can fool people. Of course we can, you know, we could use something as simple as a movie playing on a screen to convince, you know, to fool people into thinking that someone is around. I mean, you know, even, or even just a sound recording from that great classic movie, you know, um, you know, the one with Macaulay Culkin where he's at home, home alone, home alone, where he's at home alone. Thank God. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so he can fool the, he can fool the bandits by, you know, playing this movie on the screen. And they think that someone is home. You know, the fact that we can be fooled that way is not, you know, is not proof that there's really nobody home. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. But it's a hard problem. It's what, it's the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. I think Searle and I'm forgetting, uh, 
Uh, this is the brain of digital sure. computer. Someone, so, someone cited that in their talk. It's, it's on my list of things to read at some point. Searle's article on, I hope it's an art, I hope it's an article, not a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm always a fan of Searle. I, I, uh, he was a, I took his class okay. at uh, Berkeley, but, um, he's always been skeptical of this. You know, people, always seem to think the brain is just like whatever the latest technology was. That oh, used, gosh. Yeah. They used to think the brain was just like a telephone switchboard. <laughs> and they, they used to think yeah. the brain was just like – Descartes apparently thought it was just like a pneumatic system of tubes. Of course. All these yeah, yeah. Stuff. And, and, the, and the soul runs up through the pineal gland. So yeah. uh, he's skeptical of that, I think, rightly yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was refreshing. Um, I pick up, uh, John Rady, who's, I think, uh, most famous for his books back in the nineties about attention deficit disorder and associated things. But he wrote a whole, you know, sort of generalist book called The User's Guide to the Brain, where he, he starts out in the first few pages saying, whatever the brain is, it is almost nothing like a digital computer for these reasons. I'm like, oh, that's, that's refreshing. <laughs> And in fact, yeah, neurons don't, you know, have binary signals or, you know, and, there, and there's not, you know, a single dedicated memory module and all of this, you know, the architecture is really almost completely different. Yeah, I think that's, that's clear. And, and we, we, um, just like last year, there was a, a article in science about how the, the neuron, the, even the simple model of the firing of the neuron that, there, it was a kind of accumulate and trigger. Yeah. And that turned out not to be the case. There are all kinds of other little triggering events in the, mm -hmm. in the dendrites and it was uh -huh. just much more complicated. So. Yeah. Yeah. A single uh, neuron has uh, like, I mean, like thousands, like one axon and potentially thousands of dendrites. I mean, how can we, how can we be that confident that we <laughs> know how that works? Now you, you, you do know that it's made of molecules. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that yeah. where uh, the physicalist comes in on firm ground is, well, it's made of molecules. And mm -hmm. I don't know what all the molecules yeah. are doing. It's complicated. But there are molecules there, and they're responding to well, local there may fields. Be a, maybe a dozen elements involved. So, we yeah. know their properties. And, yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. all yeah, extremely so, true. But, yeah. But it's that emergent, you know. The mere, it's, it's, if it's a homework problem, it's a darn hard homework problem. <laughs> I think consciousness is seen, I, I, I take that, that's a hard problem. It's a hard problem because you, it does jump seemingly uh, an insurmountable gap. Um, mm -hmm. You're not going to find something in the equations of motion that mm -hmm. explains the subjectivity that seems to yeah. arise. And yeah. we're talking about things that happen in animals and, and so forth. But it's, you know, I think it's worth remembering because it's particles, it's a, it's a highly, it's a complex system with mm -hmm. many degrees of freedom and the, the quantum mechanics still applies mm -hmm. and all that. So, uh, we see, we see things, the sun, uh, much, a distance is much bigger than proteins mm -hmm. that are in quantum superposition states. You yeah. Know, you see big, uh, big effects over big distances of, um, matter waves. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to think that, uh, as is often asserted that, well, whatever is happening in the brain is classical, that it's, it's, uh, that there's some averaging out. Mm -hmm. 
So if the, the averaging out that would be uh, awfully convenient for a materialist, but not. I think it's it's unjustified. I mean, yeah. that would be an average over identical systems or something. But there's a, there's a mm-hmm. there's a particular yeah. system in front of you or in between your ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, and you could, I mean, you can, and you could look at weather. I mean, are there not, <clears throat> are there, or are there not quantum fluctuations that actually multiply out to the point that they change? You know, is is weather simply a case of we don't know, we don't have a demon to tell us exactly where every air molecule is, or is there, are there actually quantum changes that you know at some point result in there being snow today in Cleveland rather than not? Because you're thinking that you have quantum choices that get amplified by classical chaos, mm-hmm. by the sensitivity to initial conditions. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I mean, and again, you know, and uh, something closer to home for me, I've often wondered about, you know, so you take a crystal, you take a crystal of olivine, and you shear it. And, you know, you don't necessarily know where that crystal is going to. You know, you have an idea what angle if you you know if you shear two sides of a cube of olivine it's going to break somewhere and if you do it a lot of times there will be a set of statistical rules for what the you know the distribution of angles would be but what controls exactly where it breaks is there an always an existing dislocation but there are lots of dislocate there are lots of dislocations in a in a macroscopic crystal which one becomes the one where the the crack nucleates is that a quantum process that has a macroscopic result or is it, or can you really, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's another question I don't, I don't actually I don't know. I mean, to. I could imagine yeah. that question being resolved on the classical side. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm certain there's not enough funding in geology to solve that. <laughs> <laughs> it's back to, almost certain that no one has done that. Back to funding. <laughs> it is the great, uh, it is the great uh, limiting factor in, in scientific uh, work. You know, there's there's the there's the uncertainty principle and there's funding and I think I know which one's more powerful. <laughs> we'll cut it there for this week. Be sure to come back next week where we finish the interview with Craig Lent and we talk a little bit more physics and a little bit more about Craig's journey of faith. This has been another episode of That's So Second Millennium with me, Paul Geesting, geologist and intellectual pilgrim, and my co-host, the journalist and consultant Bill Schmidt. Be sure to check us out at tssm.podbean.com. We hope you subscribe and leave us a review via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. As always, thanks for listening.